Let's just make sure we're all on the same page. If you believe that God is great, say amen. amen. Okay, so now you got your amen on. So don't hesitate to use it a few times this morning, okay? The passage that we're going to be looking at in Acts chapter 28 is we're picking up from where we left off at in verse 16 last week. So we're picking up in verse 17 this week and kind of diving right back into the last 13 or so verses in the book of Acts. Kind of feel like I'm saying goodbye to an old friend this morning, right? We've been in this for 44 weeks. Thank you for being incredibly patient as we work through this together. Uh, it, it, it's not our longest study ever. We did Revelation for 47 weeks, and we did the book of John for 56 weeks. So this one's kind of like, you know, coming in third place. But it was a long study, wasn't it? Uh, and and I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to miss it, but maybe a few weeks from now. I'll be looking back on it thinking, yeah, I wish I was still back in Acts. But right now, I'm kind of glad to be saying goodbye to it after 44 weeks. But it, it's been really good. It's challenged me in a lot of places. I hope it's challenged you to see how the, the first century church responded to the things that Jesus called them to do. Where we left off at last week was with Paul coming into Rome. And we see him with just an amazing opportunity. He finds himself in the midst of the world's greatest empire that the, the world had ever known up to that point in the first century. Uh, there had been greater empires than Rome, but up to that point, no one had known anything like Rome. Incredibly expansive. So Paul finds himself in a place that's much like where we're at today. He's in a capital city. And, and, and in this particular capital city, people are really focused on day in and day out life. It's a really dense population. People are trying to survive. They're trying to figure out how to educate their kids. They're wondering what retirement's going to look like. How am I going to survive in my old age? They're, they're thinking through all of these things. But here's the biggest issue with them. Most of them had no relationship with Jesus whatsoever. And Paul knew that. There are pagan people living in a pagan land living apart from God, most of them thinking there's many gods, small g, and that's just what Paul had to encounter. Now, we come to a surprise this morning when we come into chapter 28. We've been set up for the last several chapters to believe that Paul is going to stand before Caesar and we're going to get to see it and we're going to get to hear about it, but that's not how Acts 28 ends. As a matter of fact, we don't get any real details of his trial before Caesar. We're left to speculate, well, what happened? Because nothing is said of his trial. Well, we'll come back to that towards the end here this morning. But before that, let's jump back into the passage. We'll go into verse 17. You'll see it up on the screen as well if you can file along in your own Bibles. It says this in Acts 28, After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Now, Paul's never been one to waste time, right? He's always Joe active. So we find him three days after arriving. He's got the leaders of the synagogues coming to him. Apparently, there were many Jewish uh, synagogues in Rome. They're kind of littered around the city. And multiple leaders who lead those synagogues are coming to meet with him because the community is pretty large. So Paul's got a really difficult task now. He's got to explain to these leaders why he's a prisoner and defend his own innocence, even with the mindset that he's put in chains because of Jewish leaders. Yet he's got Jewish leaders in his living room, and he's got to help them understand how he ended up in this situation. So he begins with an explanation. 
And he goes through a kind of a very brief description of what we studied in chapters 22 through 26. It greatly abbreviated. And he doesn't get into the details because he has a bigger reason for bringing them there. He really wants them to listen to him about who Jesus is. Verse 18. And when they had examined me, this is still Paul speaking, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my, my nation. So just as he's not guilty of any crime, he's not going to be guilty of holding a grudge. The leaders falsely accused him, but he's going to make no accusations because he just wants one thing from them. He just wants them to listen to who Jesus is. That's the real reason Paul finds himself in chains. Verse 20, he alludes to that. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. For I am wearing this, cha this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. Uh, anybody that's been in this study for any length of time would agree. The testimony that Paul has given, the witness continually time after time after time has been this, that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Right, church? Okay, that's Paul's witness. He wants everybody to understand he knows who Jesus is. So he's saying, I know precisely why I'm in chains, the hope of Israel. When someone in the New Testament uses the phrase, the hope of Israel, or they use it in the Old Testament, they're talking about three very specific things. They're talking specifically about the coming of a future Messiah. They're talking about the resurrection of the dead. And they're talking about the kingdom that's associated with that Messiah. Those three things are encapsulated within this phrase, the hope of Israel. So Paul has been really methodical, incredibly intentional about announcing Jesus is that king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah. That's why he uses the phrase, the hope of Israel. That hope is a recurring theme. We've seen it in the last three chapters. Before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, he said, brothers, I'm on trial for the hope of Israel. Before the governors, Felix and Festus, he says, I'm on trial for the hope of Israel. Before King Agrippa, I'm on trial for the hope of Israel. Well, what is that hope again? That there would be a resurrection of the dead, that there would be a Messiah to bring it about. That hope that you celebrated this morning with communion, that's firmly rooted in the Old Testament, not just in the New Testament. So if you're a person who keeps notes and, and you've got your notes out this morning, you're gonna see three verses go up on the screen that you might wanna write down in the back of your Bible. Things that remind us, yeah, that's right, it's not just resurrection talked about in the New Testament, it's also talked about in the New Testament, or the Old Testament, by some really big pillars. Look with me up on the screen at the very first one, and the first one comes from the book of Job. Job chapter 19. Job said this, even after my skin is destroyed, he's talking about death, right? Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes shall see and not another. Sounds like a resurrection, doesn't it? Does to me. This is kind of participatory. Does it sound like a resurrection? Yeah, okay, it does. It, he says, even after I'm dead, I'm still gonna see. So he's talking about life after death. Well, let's, that's Job, let's go to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 26, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Isaiah's pretty big dude in the Old Testament, right? Prophet of prophets, he's saying the same thing. Then Daniel, here's a third one. 
Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. See, Paul is saying to them, this hope of Israel, and they knew exactly what he was talking about. When he was talking about, I'm unchanged for the hope of Israel, this hope of Israel has put me where I'm at. The, the understanding that there's a Messiah, the understanding that there is a resurrection, the understanding that there is a kingdom associated with all of this. Well, they have a response to him, verses 21 and 22. Look first with me at verse 21. They said to him, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. Now, the first response is kind of surprising, especially if you've been a student of this book. No letters whatsoever, no charge, not even an oral report. Maybe it's because of winter. Maybe it's because Paul caught the last ship out of Jerusalem in the fall before the ports all shut down, and then he caught the first ship in the spring to Italy before everything else opened up. Maybe that's why, we're just kind of speculating, but no charges whatsoever, that's surprising. But then their second response is even more surprising. That's in verse 22, they're, they're saying, we really don't know much about this Christian community. Go with me to verse 22. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. Now, that's really interesting because he never brought up the name of Jesus, did he? He said, I'm in chains for the hope of Israel. See, they knew immediately what he was talking about. And they're thinking, oh, he's talking about this Jesus guy that everybody's been speaking of the resurrection. So we want to know, what are you talking about? What is this thing that we're hearing about? Because for us, it's only been gossip. That's kind of surprising because Christians are well-established in Rome by this point. Paul has already written a letter to them, a light piece of work called the Book of Romans. Come on. It's not a light piece of work, right? Okay, he's already written to them the Book of Romans, so there's a Christian community in Rome. We saw last week that Christians left Rome and ran down the Appian Way to meet him as he entered the city. So the Christian community is in Rome. It's really shocking. They say, we don't know much about this. We want to hear what your views are. I'm thinking at verse 22, when they say, we desire to hear what your views are, I'm thinking, Paul's heart skipped a beat, right? I'm thinking, he's like, oh my goodness, they really set me up. They want to hear who Jesus is? This is great. So they laid the platform for him, verse 23, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. So Paul's still under guard. He's still in chains, right? He's a prisoner of Rome. So they have to come to him. So they come sit down in his living room, this rented quarters, and apparently a really, really large group. It's no longer just the leadership. It's no longer just the guys from the synagogue. This is large numbers. And so what does Paul do? He devotes his entire day, morning till evening, to talking about the gospel. But Dr. Luke, famously, he does this all the time. He only summarizes it for us. He brings it down to two phrases. He says he talked to them about the kingdom of God, and he talked to them about Jesus. Well, that's twin concepts. It's two sides of the same coin. Jesus, you can't speak of without talking about the kingdom, and you can't talk about the kingdom without talking about Jesus. So contextually, we should understand what's going on here. 
For millennia, if you just step back from the story for a minute, for millennia, the people of Israel had been looking for the restoration of God's kingdom, especially in a renewed Israel. So you find when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven after the resurrection, after he's been crucified, after the resurrection, Jesus is on planet earth 40 days later and he's about to ascend into heaven and what's the last question the disciples ask him? Acts chapter one, verse six, look on the screen. They say to him, they're asking him, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? See, they're constantly looking for it. Well, you're obviously the Messiah. You've you've been resurrected This must be the time when you're going to bring the kingdom back. That's because individuals in that mindset were saying, when is this going to happen? Well, the message of Acts, as we've seen very clearly, it's already happened. It's occurred in Jesus. So Paul takes the time to explain to them from the Old Testament, from the prophets to Moses, that's what they're referring to here, Moses and all the prophets. He's not using speculations. He's not using feelings. He's using God's infallible word. Now, we're not told specifically what passages he used. How does he explain it to them? Here's what I'm thinking. The same passages that Jesus used after the resurrection. We're told that Jesus is walking along a dirt road with some of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he began explaining to them how the Messiah had to suffer because they were confused by that. And how the Messiah not only suffered, but he had to die and that he would be resurrected again. I'm thinking that's the same thing Paul did with them. Because he's hearkening back in verse 23 to the kingdom of God. That they would really grasp what the kingdom of God is all about. The kingdom of God, as you speak about it to your friends today. If you engage yourself in any of those kind of conversations about who Jesus is in your life and what it means for him to have a kingdom It covers way more than the future reign of Jesus. The kingdom is also God's rule over the scope of salvation, his rule over your own life. So to speak of the kingdom of God is to do what you just did this morning when you lifted up the bread and you lifted up the cup. You're you're literally saying this phenomenal news is I own this because Jesus forgave me of my sins and he promised me eternity with him. See, you have a story to tell when you're lifting up the bread and you're lifting up the cup. So that's what Paul is doing for them. He's helping them to understand, I stepped from the realm of death into the realm of life and it happened through Jesus. So his explanation of that is so powerful that when you come into verse 24, you see an immediate reaction to what he does. It's the end of the day, right? He spent from morning to evening. Look with me at verse 24, part A. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken. Uh, That's great, we we get that, we understand that, but there's this really sharp division in the midst of it because 24b doesn't read the same way. 24b says, but others would not believe. Uh, This really kind of set me back, church, over the last couple weeks, I'm getting ready for this morning to finish the book of Acts, and I, I see this positive response to what Paul has just shared, and I see this negative response, and here's what resonated with me. Maybe you're thinking the same thing right now you have arguably the world's greatest theologian in the first century in Paul. Meaning he knows everything there is about theology that somebody could possibly digest. Studied at the school of Gamaliel. And you have arguably the world's greatest evangelist in Paul living in the first century. 
all embodied within one person, and he's just invested an entire day into explaining the kingdom of God and Jesus. Now, not only is he a brilliant thinker, but he's also had personal encounters with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit works through him powerfully. And angels have come to visit him. And that Paul is not 100% successful in explaining the gospel. It should give you pause to say, oh, okay, well, there's something going on when I share the gospel and people don't respond either. I'm not the only one. Paul's experiencing the exact same thing. What's going on here? Well, it's something much, much bigger than just a person's capacity. It's much, much bigger than just our theological background or our personal experiences with Jesus. What you're looking at is spiritual warfare here. You're seeing people with blinders on, individuals who can't see because they won't see. So we really need to understand how is this possible? My take is that when I talk to individuals who are not very much involved in church life whatsoever, and yet they consider themselves Christian, it's kind of reflective of much of American society. I believe that if you ask the average person on the street if they were Christian, they would say yes. And I know that because 79% of Americans consider themselves Christian. However, when you ask someone to explain how is it that Jesus actually saves most people are at a complete loss. So what I needed to do in order to move through this story with you, just very briefly, you'll find it in your notes on the right-hand side. I put these little bullet points to help you to understand. What is it that Jesus actually does for us? How is salvation actually understood? So here's, here's just a primer on this. The gospel that we speak of, the, the word gospel that we use, the gospel actually reveals salvation. Now start with this thought, and you might even want to tuck those notes in the back of your Bible. Maybe you'll use them sometime in the future. First of all, the gospel, the salvation that we're talking about, is entirely accomplished by God. And let's just make sure we're all on the same page on that. God did it all, right, church? Okay. He does it all. So we're saved by grace, not by works. No one can boast. He did all of it. We just respond to what he's offered. So with that thought in mind, we can move through these bullet points. The, the first thing we should remember about the gospel is it, a good representation of it means that mankind is lost. It, it represents man as completely lost, living in a fallen world, personally living in sin, meaning we're lost in sin. So with that knowledge in mind, we move to the second bullet point, which is a gospel presentation represents Jesus, God the Son, becoming Jesus the man, and taking on our humanity and doing something that we couldn't do. Obeying the law, we couldn't do that because we live in sin. And the third part is it represents Jesus as enduring the penalty which we each deserve because we live in sin, meaning he had to endure death for us, that, that death on a cross. And the fourth thing is it represents Jesus as defeating that sin and death and rising again as confirmation that he defeated it. So get your amen on right there because that's one thing you want to say amen to. Did Jesus rise again? Amen. amen, right. Okay, so we understand that his rising again is confirmation that he defeated sin and death. So those four points are really important and they amplify the fifth component, which is not in your notes. Just hear me on this. The gospel declares that everyone who comes to Jesus relying completely on him will be acceptable to God. Now that is a great thought. Everyone who relies on Jesus for their salvation is acceptable to God. 
This is the truth of what I've just said. The only grounds for you to be able to stand before God one day and say, I should be allowed into heaven is because of one reason and one reason alone. If you stand before God today, let's say God takes you home today and you stand at the gates of heaven and God says to you, why should I let you in? Your answer has to be this every single time. Because of the all-sufficient righteousness of Jesus Christ my Lord. That's your answer. Because you didn't do anything to earn it. That's the gospel that he took on flesh, that he came for me, that he died for my sins and that he rose again. And if you declare that, you're declaring the gospel. So the gospel, as it's properly told, reveals salvation, but the gospel also divides as we see the response in the story. Go with me to verse 25. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. He begins quoting the book of Isaiah here. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, verse 26, saying... Go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand, and you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. If you're writing notes down, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And this passage is a really, really big deal. Jesus used this exact same passage in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke when he's speaking to people about the fact that they were not listening to him. You, you and I know it's one thing to listen, it's quite something else to hear, right? If you've raised teenagers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you hear something, you don't always necessarily perceive it. What Jesus is speaking of that exact same issue in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Paul is talking about it here, and he says it's a prophecy. In other words, they're going to keep on doing it. Do you notice the way the words are used? You will keep on. You will not understand, meaning it's going to keep happening. It's not just a one-time thing. So these words constitute a prophecy of stubbornness. And he says it's happening in three areas, your eyes, your ears, and your heart. And Jewish thought the heart was the seat of understanding. He said, these, these three things keep going on of, for you. So here's the picture. The picture is of a group of people who take in sensory observation, but in no way whatsoever do they own it. They take it in, but they don't respond to it. Why? Because they have a calloused heart. Otherwise, they would respond to it. So watch where it goes. Verse 27, this is still quoting Isaiah. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. The early Christians really, really wrestled with that truth. Paul wrestled a great deal. When you read Romans chapter 9 through Romans chapter 11, you find Paul going through these mental wrestling matches of, why? Why can I hear it and respond to it, but others can hear it and they don't respond to it? Matter of fact, they, they downright reject it. So when you come to Romans chapter 11, Paul is really wrestling with the, the reality that this is like a mystery, it's a riddle. Well, the Jewish rejection is a riddle, but it's also a reality. And to a great extent, it remains true today. How is it possible that the gospel, which was foreshadowed in the Jewish Old Testament scriptures, fulfilled in a Jewish Messiah, proclaimed by Jewish men like Paul, how is it possible that they would reject it and yet the Gentiles would embrace it? 
It's only understood this one way. And even this is still a mystery. It's only understood because of Israel's willful act of rejecting who Jesus is. And it built up this callous over their heart. We see the same thing today with friends and people that we interact with. The more they hear about Jesus, the colder they become to it, and the greater the rejection is. So because of the continual unbelief of Israel, she ultimately became to the, came to the place where they were unable to believe. John 12 says they could not believe. I want to show you an example of this on the screen from John 12. And here's the background. Jesus has been doing a lot of mighty works. I mean, miracles. We're talking restored limbs, eyesight restored, people raised from the dead. And look at the response of Israel, John 12, 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. That kind of issue is what caused Jesus to stand outside the city of Capernaum, which was Peter's hometown, and say to the people of Capernaum, Woe to you, Capernaum! For if the works that I have done had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained to this day. But the people of Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up in the day of judgment and bring condemnation upon you. For if the things that I have done had been done in that city, they would have surely repented in sackcloth and ashes." So you get a picture of what's going on, of how hard their hearts are against who Jesus is. So this is wonder of wonders to me, to begin to try and grasp what's going on here. How can the heart be so hard? In order to understand that, we need to move forward in the passage. Go with me to verse 28. Therefore, this is Paul speaking now. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. Verse 29, when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. So his response, the Gentiles will hear, the Gentiles will listen, and they will hear it with receptive hearts, and they will receive the gospel. So here's the wonder of wonders to me. How is it possible if these individuals, with all of their available information, with the world's greatest theologian, the world's greatest evangelist, who had personally walked and talked with Jesus, how is it possible when he spends an entire day with these individuals and they know God's word inside and out, how is it possible that they could squander such profound knowledge and reject the gospel? Does it not logically stand to reason that if those individuals would reject it, th- that we as Gentiles, as we, when we hear this, that we would reject it as well? That it would not make any sense to us? How do we understand our capacity to stand in a crowded auditorium and lift up the cup and the bread and say to each other, I own this. I absolutely belong. I get exactly what Jesus did. How do we understand that, church? Here's how. This is the only answer I have for you. But God, who is rich in mercy. (laughs) There's an amen opportunity for you. That God is rich in mercy. Do you know where that comes from? Ephesians 2. Paul wrote that very thing. Look with me on the screen. Ephesians 2, 4. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Let's finish that last part together, church. By grace you have been saved. (laughs) We didn't do it. 
It's all him. He did the whole deal. See, with our God, nothing is impossible. If he began a good work in you, he's going to be faithful to complete it. That's what he promises us. Our God continues to see it through to the end. His word never fails. And when we respond to what he offers, he receives us gladly. So how do we understand this calloused heart? Well, we understand it just because of the constant building up of the rejection of who Jesus is. Paul wrote about this in Romans 11 when he was wrestling through, how is it possible that these individuals can reject something that's so obvious? Look with me on the screen at what he said, Romans 11:22. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. He's juxtapositioning the two. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off. Verse 30 is, is just a very subtle way of ending out this story. We get the background of what Paul did for two years. Look with me at verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. All openness unhindered means Rome came to the same conclusion. Rome arrived at the conclusion that Paul didn't say anything subversive. They didn't need to shut him out or gag him. He's unhindered because they gave him permission to talk freely. But he's still in chains waiting for trial to go before Caesar. So what happened during those two years? I don't know how you use your spare time, but here's what Paul did with his spare time. He wrote the book of Ephesians, and, and that wasn't enough for him. So then he wrote the book of Philemon, and then he wrote the book of Philippians, and then he wrote the book of Colossians. He makes me feel like a slacker, I got to tell you, <laughs> right? Uh, he's in prison, and yet he's talking freely about Jesus unhindered to anybody who will come to him. And in, the, in his evenings, he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. <laughs> it's just so intimidating. So what happened when the two years are over? Well, as we understand it from history, um, he was released because there were no accusations brought against him. And apparently he was free to travel a little bit. He may have actually made it to Rome or to Spain as his desire was. But ultimately Rome arrested him again and Caesar Nero had him beheaded according to tradition. That, that's what we know about history. That's history. We can just speculate on that because all the pieces are not filled in. But here's where I want to end, church. I want to end with verse 31. It says, He preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, we've seen from beginning to end some constant truths and three specific ones that I really want to bring out to you right now. In the book of Acts, get your amens on, get ready for this, okay? In the book of Acts, we've seen the church's original power source has not changed. It's the Holy Spirit, right? Okay. So the Holy Spirit that's active through New Hope today was active through the church in the first century, Anything that's going on here in the way of growth, anything that's going on in the way of people responding to the gospel, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So our power source has not changed. And that leads us to the second component. The church's message, the true church's message has not changed. It's still Jesus saves, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second amen opportunity, okay? All right, just coaching you here. All right, so that has not changed. First part has not changed. Second part has not changed. So that leads us to the third part, and that's how we see Paul ending here in this story. And I'm grateful that Dr. Luke really focused in on that. Rather than giving us history in detail, he focused in on what the story is really all about, the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that tells me what our third priority is. 
the church's priority, and God, I pray that this is true of us 50 years from today, that New Hope will be known as a place that's still teaching the word to those who know Christ and sharing the gospel with those who do not know Christ. That's the church's priority. You ready to say a big amen on that one? Okay, amen, all right, yeah. That, that's our responsibility according to the book of Acts. And with that, we come to the close of Acts chapter 28. So here's how I wanna pray for us right now. I'm just gonna invite God to take all this knowledge that we've gained and translate it over to our walk, that we would use it in the midst of our week in and week out activities. Would you join me in that prayer? Let's pray together. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray for every age group that's represented here because every age group represents so many opportunities. We don't know what this week holds ahead of us, but you do. You know precisely what's going to happen in every single individual's life here. You know what's going to happen in the elections. You know what's going to happen in our businesses. Nothing catches you by surprise, but it always catches us by surprise, Father. So I would ask for us in the midst of our surprises, in the midst of our daily activities, that you would translate this information that we've gained, that we've heard, that we've perceived, that you would take that, Father, and use it for your kingdom. As a result of what we've processed, make us bolder in our walk. And I pray, God, that you'd make us stronger in our talk that we would speak as individuals who know that we know that we know that we have the answers that people are looking for because your word can be trusted. So Father, I ask that you would use your word that way in our lives. You, you've promised that your word is alive, that it's active. Make it active in our life personally. Let us speak boldly of the name of Jesus because he's worth it. God, we ask this in the name of the one who redeemed us, our Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen, amen. and Acts is over. Have a great week.